0: Welcome to Rigo's Business Review, where we bring you the latest in leadership, business, and tech. I'm your host, Carl Rigo. Join us each week as we share unexpected insights and underreported stories from the world of business to inform, uplift, and inspire, and make you think. Hello, and thank you for joining us for Episode 4, A New Hope. Today we'll cover the Wild Week on Wall Street, if you've heard headlines on GameStop and Robinhood and wondered what it was all about, stay tuned. And we'll cover the main takeaways from the Davos Agenda Conference. And in the Executive Suite, we'll reveal secrets of superb communicators and how one small change in the way we ask questions can make a big difference. We begin on Wall Street, capping off what was a volatile and chaotic week. Here are a few key things to know about what was driving that dynamic. So, what happened was an army of small traders took on hedge fund titans on Wall Street and beat them at their own game. So, who are some of the players in this drama? Well, there's an online community called Wall Street Bets hosted on the Reddit platform, and they share trading tips and opinions amongst themselves. Well, that group noticed that GameStop, which is a struggling brick-and-mortar video game retailer, was heavily shorted by hedge funds, which basically means the hedge funds were, had placed bets that that stock and that company was going to continue to drop. The consensus on Wall Street seemed to be that that company would soon go the way of Blockbuster. Well, the Wall Street bets investors a different view than the short sellers and they actually believed that the company was undervalued so they started buying more shares. And why did it blow up? Well CNN and Bloomberg report that what really caused this story to take off was in early January when GameStop announced three new directors would be joining its board including co-director of Chewy Ryan Cohen and he brings he brought online digital experience to the table, something that GameStop desperately needed as video games go digital and malls continue their unrelenting slump with the lockdown and they're in secular decline as it is. So GameStop's stock rose that day but then, and then it began to gain momentum and it started going up and up in the next couple of days. And then uh, as of the end of January, the stock was up 1,600% from the beginning of the month, from $4 to, you know, several hundred dollars. Uh, Ultimately, the surge had a lot to do with the fact that um, as the Reddit investors uh, got more involved and bought a lot of GameStop options, those, those hedge funds who had shorted the stock were forced to buy more shares to cover their losing bids. Thus, which drove the share price up even further. That's a process that's known as a short squeeze. So once the shorts had made, the shorts were overextended. Uh, one estimate shows that between 140% to 260% of the available shares in GameStop had actually been shorted. So it was quite a, a lot of hedge funds had piled into that position. So it was ripe for the short squeeze. And CNN reports that it, it quickly became a sort of populist uprising. And the only ones crying foul were the quote-unquote sophisticated Wall Street players. And CNN reported that the irony is that an online flash mob beats Wall Street insiders at their own game. Of course, that wasn't the end of the story. So on Tuesday, last week, GameStop was the most traded stock on the planet. Two days later, the Robinhood platform, trading platform, had suspended trading of that stock and several others which left the Wall Street Bets crowd only two options. They could no longer buy any more of the shares. They could only hold or sell. Meanwhile, the institutional investors, who don't need Robinhood to execute their trades, were able to carry on trading. So not surprisingly, then the stock dropped and there were the backlash was swift against Robinhood. There were some other platforms as well that suspended trading in, in the stock. And there have now been several class action lawsuits and prominent politicians such as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others uh, in the Republican Party have condemned uh, the practice as well. We'll get to Elizabeth what Elizabeth Warren had to say about it in a moment. Uh, Robin Hood had some financial challenges as well. They had to tap $1 billion in funding from their existing investors, so signaling that they were short on cash. So then by th- the end of the day on Thursday and into Friday, Robinhood had had allowed some trading in the stock. And then things carry on in a certain way. So where is this all heading? Well, the bubble will burst eventually. The the, the sense is that the underlying fundamentals for GameStop most likely do not seem to really support these sky-high prices. And regulators say, look, someone's going to get hurt here. So that's part of the story so far. And what does the government and regulators have to say about this? Well, technically, uh, you're not allowed to collude to drive up the stock, the price of a stock. However, unfortunately, questionable practices have been around for years. People talk about the pump and dump and the short and distort and the regulator, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC has been accused of not being strict enough. In contrast senator elizabeth warren who is a former presidential candidate who has a reputation for being critical of wall street and regulators and who has a reputation for being focused on consumer protections said that wall street regulators need to wake need to quote wake up and do their jobs she also said quote the truth is the hedge funds many of the giant corporations love the fact that markets are not efficient She said they love being able to manipulate these markets because they get better returns and individual investors lose out. She went on to say, understand what's happening with GameStop is just a reminder of what's been going on on Wall Street now for years and years and years. It's a rigged game, Senator Warren said. We need a market that is transparent, that is level and open to individual investors. It's time for the SEC to get off their duffs and do their jobs. So what next? Well, it's worth noting that the potential conflicts of interest Are many in this story. For example, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen in recent years had taken $800,000 in speaking fees from one of the hedge funds at the center of this situation. And if you look at the relationship between some of the trading platforms like Robinhood and some of their their other clients' hedge funds who they sell data to, you also get the sense that there may be lots of questions to ask there. For their part, the Securities and Exchange Commission have said that they will closely review the actions that have taken place and Senator Warren has pledged that the Senate Banking Commission will hold an inquiry. So hopefully the facts will come out. Senator Warren has also said that the SEC should conduct a broader review of market manipulation in the round and come up with new measures which they then actually enforce effectively. So stay tuned as that story continues to unfold. Next, we turn to Davos, Switzerland for other international news. The first ever virtual Davos Agenda conference wrapped up this week. Where 24 world leaders met under the banner of rebuilding trust in a critical year. They discussed a number of partnerships and initiatives to address crucial economic, social and environmental challenges, including the pandemic. And the conclusions from the Davos Agenda will feed into the upcoming special annual meeting in Singapore later this year. So what were some of the headlines? Professor Klaus Schwab, the the Executive Chairman of the World Economic Forum said, Quote, we need to move from a world which is just based on material objectives to one that is much more conscious of the well-being of people. And he added, we are witnessing a mindset shift from short-term profit maximization to a world that is much more characterized by stakeholder responsibility. And that's something we've talked about on the show and we'll continue to pick up on in future episodes. Schwab said that the pandemic has shown that companies committing to stakeholder capitalism perform much better because they invest in the long-term viability of the company. They also touched on the importance of a wider definition of capital, one that includes human, social and natural capital, because it is all those aspects combined that create wealth and prosperity. And of course, sustainability and support from the vulnerable were emphasized, including the importance of containing COVID-19 and working quickly to mitigate further fractures in society. World World Economic Forum president noted that the most pressing issues we are facing do not recognize borders but deep and meaningful global cooperation is not always a given it requires deliberate action and i would say that is absolutely right Uh, if as in life and business if if something is not prioritized and resourced appropriately it will not get done even if everyone agrees it's a good idea so what were some of the other concrete takeaways under the heading of driving responsible industry transformation and growth more than 60 business leaders have committed to a set of stakeholder capitalism metrics, which they will publicly disclose, which are focused on people, planet, and prosperity, and governance. They will report on these metrics publicly. I would just add, from my own experience, having done a lot of campaigning for various humanitarian sort of aims and altruistic aims, public reporting is a very important step toward uh, improvement and progress. Another key takeaway was that in support of the goal of supplying two billion doses of COVID-19 vaccines, various global shipping, airlines and logistics companies have signed a charter to support inclusive vaccine delivery for low and middle income countries who, as we know, really need that. And these signatories have stepped forward with tangible collaboration proposals with UNICEF and the World Economic Forum. Just to add the so-it about that is obviously this is an urgent need for those individuals who live in those countries. It's important for them and it's important for the rest of the world as well because the longer the virus is allowed to, to spread, the more it will mutate and the more variants, troublesome variants there can be. So the longer it will take to get under control and the more it could potentially thwart vaccination efforts. So the sooner we get it under control, the sooner the world gets it under control, the better for everyone. And returning to climate change. A new report with Boston Consulting Group announced that eight supply chains account for more than 50% of global emissions and that fully decarbonizing these supply chains would add only 1% to 4% to the end consumer costs. What this means is that removing carbon from supply chains is a really important opportunity for corporate climate action. And the opportunity for impact is especially high for consumer-facing companies whose supply chain emissions far outweigh their direct emissions from manufacturing. And the report concludes that these companies can use their buying power to push for rapid decarbonization and help fund the transition by co-investing alongside upstream raw material producers, which struggle to finance the, tra- to, which struggle to finance the transition to lower carbon solutions on their own. Fortunately, the report also says that it is possible to reduce a large proportion of these supply chain emissions with technologies that are readily available and can be deployed at low costs. And one thing that companies can do is to be sure to align incentives internally to ensure that decision makers focus on lowering emissions. And lastly, in terms of harnessing the technologies of, of the fourth industrial revolution, You may be aware that almost one half of the global population remains offline. There's a new group called the Edison Alliance, which will accelerate digital inclusion and address inequality and connect critical sectors of the economy. It is the first global mobilization of public sector and industry leaders to ensure everyone can participate in the digital economy. And lastly, they formed a Global Artificial Intelligence Action Alliance to bring together more than 100 companies, governments and civil organizations and academic institutions to accelerate the responsible adoption of artificial intelligence in the public interest. So something that's very important we'll pick up on in future episodes. Now, in other upbeat news, Bloomberg reports that the biggest vaccination campaign in history is underway. How many doses have been delivered now? It's more than 100 million doses have been delivered in 62 countries, been in those, that's how many doses have actually been administered, and the latest rate That's equivalent to 4.2 million doses every day on average. And the top five countries leading the vaccination efforts are the U.S., China, the U.K., Israel, and India in terms of the number of people in their population who have received vaccinations. And in further good news for the U.S., McKinsey reports that with all the various types of vaccines becoming available this year high-risk Americans could all be vaccinated by mid-2021. Obviously, that is with the effects of any new virus variants notwithstanding, and bearing in mind that some of these new vaccines are subject to regulatory authorization. But still, things are looking positive. Now, continuing in the spirit of Davos, of bringing people together, we ask, would you like to know one secret of superb communicators. What is one small change we can make that can make a big difference? That's the subject of our next segment. Join us in the executive suite. Today we're going to start by conducting an experiment. Don't worry, it'll be fun. Experiment consists of two questions. Question one, why are you listening to the podcast today? Question two, oh, what was it that made you listen to the podcast today? Question for you, right? Which of those questions do you did you prefer? Which one left you with a more positive impression? Well, chances are it was the second question. And you may say, "Well, that's interesting. Why is that? Well, the reason for that is that the word why can often come off as confrontational and implies a need for people to justify themselves, which we tend to dislike. And you may say, well, as a business person, why, why should I be concerned with how people feel about the way that I speak? Why that matters and what's important about that is that people often decide emotionally and justify rationally. And since people do business with people they know, like, and trust, we want to put our best foot forward and not break rapport or introduce friction unnecessarily and unintentionally. Now that's not to say that the word why is never used and never helpful because it is. For example, in engineering, I trained as a quality engineer as one of the subjects that we studied and applied and it's part of Lean Six Sigma. When you're getting to looking at the root cause of a problem, you do a root cause analysis. One tool is called the five whys. So for example, if you are investigating uh, what made a production line break down, it's understood you're seeking a root cause. There are other contexts where the the word why can actually backfire and be very damaging to your relationship and to your whatever endeavor you're pursuing. So we're gonna take a look at some of those contexts and what we can do about it. So for example, In sales you don't want to do what I just did in the experiment which is you don't want to open with a why question again because that can put people on the defensive and actually gets in the way of you getting uh, accessing and and people having people share the information that you seek according to industry gold standard uh, sales training organization Miller Hyman communication studies have shown that not using the word why to access information can actually double the amount of useful information that is elicited by your questioning approach. And we'll talk about how to do that. Now in sales, you can use it sparingly. You can use it as a follow-on question for a previous question, but you don't want to open with it. And even so, and you can use it sometimes if you're asking people how they feel about something, if you're asking them to make a value judgment or asking how they feel or their attitude about something, even then use it with caution. And when you do use why in this way, your tone of voice needs to convey that you're seeking out the person's, uh, you're seeking out the person's opinion, and not challenging or questioning it. All right, so definitely use this, the Y format sparingly. Anyone who has a three-year-old child will tell you that the word can get irritating. So what can we do instead? So what if you're with a prospect and they say, "Oh, I don't like this," or uh, "It costs too much," or what, what have you? Uh, you could say, "Well, oh, oh, how do you mean? Or what makes you say that?" far less confrontational and keeps the conversation going and keeps the rapport maintained. One other nuance about that is is changing from asking someone why they did something, which comes across as a demand for justification, if you change to say, oh how did you decide to do something? That's merely asking the person to describe their actions and that phrasing is perceived as less threatening. And again Miller-Hyman says, and I would agree with this, it's the difference between uh, having a conversation and it feeling like an interrogation. Okay, so that's the situation in a sales context. How about in high stakes negotiations? Well, Chris Voss, former FBI hostage negotiator, expresses things in even starker terms when he says that the word why can backfire. He says why, whatever language is translated into, it's accusatory. It always comes across as an accusation, at least in his experience in negotiations. He says there are only very rare moments when this is to your advantage. He said the only time you can use why successfully is when the defensiveness that is created supports the change you're trying to get the, the other party to see. So, for example, he says, why would your company ever change from your long-standing vendor and choose our company? Again, tone of voice is crucial here. It needs to be respectful and deferential boss says otherwise treat why like a burner on a hot stove and don't touch it. So again what can we do instead? Use what or how questions. So in terms of why did you do it say or what caused you to do it which takes away the emotion and makes it seem less accusatory. Now you may say particularly if you're quite a logical rational person how you see yourself say well oh well I don't think that way or I don't make decisions in that way I'm very rational and purely logical and, and only objective. Say well maybe you don't behave that way consciously even so in reality that does not tell the whole story in reality as social psychologist Jonathan Haidt finds in his research intuitions come first strategic reasoning second Haidt describes how neuroscientist Antonio Damasio reported in his book Descartes error that he had noticed an unusual pattern of symptoms in patients who had suffered brain damage to a specific part of the brain The bottom, middle, prefrontal cortex its the region just behind and above the bridge of the nose. What happened was that for those patients, their emotionality dropped nearly to zero. They could look at the most joyous or gruesome photographs and feel nothing. Yet they retained full knowledge of what was right and wrong, and they showed no deficits in IQ. And they even scored well on tests of moral reasoning. Yet when it came to making decisions in their personal lives and at work, they made foolish decisions or no decisions at all. They alienated their families and their employers, and their lives fell apart. Damasio's interpretation was that gut feelings and bodily reactions are necessary to think rationally, and that one job of that region of the prefrontal cortex was to integrate those gut feelings into a person's conscious deliberations. So when you weigh doing something that you find morally reprehensible, you can't even think about it for long because feelings of horror come rushing in through that bottom middle prefrontal cortex. But in patients where they had had suffered damage in that region, they could think about anything with no filtering or coloring from their emotion. With that part of the brain shut down, every option at every moment felt as good as every other. The only way to make a decision was to examine each option, weighing the pros and cons using conscious verbal reasoning. So Haidt says, if you've ever shopped for an appliance about which you have few feelings, like a washing machine, you know how hard it can be once the number of options exceeds six or seven, which we know is a capacity for a short-term memory. So just imagine what your life would be like if at every moment, in every social situation, picking the right thing to do or say became like picking the best washing machine option among 10 choices, minute after minute, day after day. You'd make foolish decisions too. So basically this research highlights the shocking revelation that reasoning requires the passions and without that portion of the brain we have a collapse of decision-making even in purely analytical and organizational tasks which was pervasive in those patients so the finding there was that the head can't even do head stuff without the heart unless I'd like to make a point or two about tone of voice so what do we mean by tone of voice And how can we modulate it and have it serve us as intended? Well, the voice vocal coaches talk about tone of voice being the musicality or note of the voice along with any other vocal nonverbal cues that someone's giving off. So, so for example, your pacing, volume, emphasis, and pauses. That's what we mean by tone of voice. And how that relates to this topic about asking questions is we want to be mindful of Of how and what we're thinking and feeling right before and as we ask questions because that will typically come across and be conveyed with the contents our emotions and and attitude and mindset are conveyed when we're talking oftentimes and many of us are not even aware of this yet the listeners will likely be aware of it as an example of how much this can matter and how much of a difference it can make I'd like to use an example from uh, PhD and communications coach Alex Lyon a simple seven-word phrase which is first I'll say it with a with, uh, basic flat emotion it says I never said she stole the money now we're going to vary things to say I never, I never said she stole the money 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 you could also say I never said she stole the money and I never said she stole the money so you can see there the wide variety of meanings that are conveyed just based on where you put the emphasis and the pause and and the tone so what can we do well I would encourage you to to consider practicing and recording yourself and playing it back to review to see if you're actually conveying the tone and contextual cues that you intend to convey and if that's serving you so one common example is if you are frustrated when you make a statement you may not be frustrated with the person you're speaking to. However, the listener, they may, they're may they not likely to know that, so they may interpret a statement said in frustration to mean that you're frustrated with them. So again, we'll need, we'll need to own the intended and unintended consequences of our communication to become superb communication, communicators. And as, as they say in sales, smile when you're talking to people on the phone. They can tell. They can feel it. So, in summary, how can we build rapport and better understand people and come across as intended and elicit helpful versus unhelpful responses from people? We'll be mindful of our word choice, for example, where and how often you use the word why, and be conscious of our tone of voice, typically being respectful and genuinely seeking to understand, particularly when we are having exploratory conversations with people and and or negotiating. So switching and rephrasing to how or what questions will often work better in the context of relationship building and sales and negotiations. Remember, we're aiming for conversation and discovery, not interrogation. And that's the view from the executive suite. Thank you for listening. That's all for this episode. Tune in next time for the latest insights and hidden gems from the world of business. In the meantime, we'd love to hear from you. For any feedback, suggestions, or questions you'd like us to cover, you can email us at krego at and on LinkedIn at karl-rego. Until next time, onwards and upwards, and thank you for listening. Rigo's Review, signing off.